Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live missionary discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you are having a very blessed Saturday. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m., but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in the public arena. We also answer your questions through our mailbag segment. You can send those to show at mncatholic.org, show at mncatholic.org, or contact us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be an episode of The Bridge Builder if we didn't try to provide you with practical ways that you can become a missionary disciple by bringing your faith into public life. This past Monday, October 7th, marked the start of the U.S. Supreme Court session. Among the cases being heard this session is Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. This case examines the question whether it violates religion clauses of the Constitution or the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution to invalidate a generally available and religiously neutral student aid program simply because the program affords students the choice of attending religious schools. Joining us on the line today to discuss this case and its impacts on school choice is Michael Bindis. Michael is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, where he has practiced since 2005. He litigates in course nationwide to protect freedom of speech, economic liberty, educational choice, and other individual liberties. And in full disclosure, Michael is a former colleague of mine, as I used to work at the Institute for Justice as well. We're glad to have Michael on the show today. Michael, welcome. Thanks, Jason. It's good to hear from you. We'll get to the Espinoza case in a moment, but first help our listeners understand what is a public interest lawyer and what do public interest lawyers like you do? Uh, Public interest lawyers uh, litigate cases to change the law for the better. Specifically, we work on constitutional issues and we bring cases to to make uh, the United States a freer society where individuals can control their own destinies as free and responsible members of society. Um, We litigate all of our cases pro bono, that's free of charge on behalf of clients, and we challenge regulations uh, that uh, impede the ability of Americans to live their lives freely. Uh, And uh, we also defend school choice programs across the country, programs that empower parents to choose the schools that will work best for their children. Why is school choice important for parents and families from a secular standpoint? We talk a lot on this show about why it's important uh, from the standpoint of uh, social justice and and faith-based institutions to be providing kids uh, without access to good quality education, those opportunities. But the Institute for Justice is a secular firm. It's not a religiously oriented one. Why is IJ so involved in school choice issues and school choice litigation? We believe that all families, regardless of their income, should be able to make the choices concerning their children's education. Uh, The fact is uh, that children are unique. Every child has unique educational needs and parents know better than government what is going to work best to meet those needs. And school choice empowers parents to make those choices to best meet the needs of their children. And and, uh, that's, that's the reason we're so passionate about it. The Institute for Justice has long been involved in school choice litigation and defending these programs. Who's challenging them? Who attacks them in the courts? Who tries to bring them down and why? Well, there are 
two groups of, of usual suspects. Uh, one uh, is the uh, groups like the ACLU, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, uh, who shudder at the idea that some parents might choose to send their children to religious schools. Um, and then the other group uh, are public school teachers unions who see school choice as a threat to the monopoly uh, that they currently have over the educational system in the United States. Uh, so typically it's one or the other of those groups. One tool opponents use to attack school choice programs are provisions in state constitutions called Blaine Amendments. What are Blaine Amendments, Michael, and why are they a threat to school choice programs? Ooh, okay, well, this this will be interesting. Uh, a little bit of a history lesson for your, uh, for your listeners. Uh, Blaine Amendments are... Uh, vestiges of 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, They are state constitutional provisions uh, that prohibit public funding of so-called sectarian schools. And and in order to determine or to understand what that means and and what they were designed to accomplish, it's important to look at how they they came about. Uh, They date back to the 19th century at a time when the public schools were much, much different than the public schools of today. Uh, The public schools were overtly religious, and they were Protestant in their orientation. Uh, Bible reading was common in the public schools. Uh, Of course, it was always the King James version of the Bible that was read. Uh, Hymn singing, prayer uh, was a standard part of the curriculum, and it was always Protestant hymns and and prayers that that were said. Uh, Obviously, this became an issue as as more and more Catholics arrived in the country in the mid-19th century, and, uh, and you had Catholic students who were being compelled to attend these public schools that were essentially Protestant. Uh, And in fact, there are a number of instances uh, of Catholic students being either expelled or even beaten for refusing to uh, engage in these Protestant exercises in the public schools. Uh, So Catholic parents began uh, demanding better treatment in the public schools. And when that didn't work, they started demanding a share of the public school funds to start their own schools. And you can imagine how that went over with the the Protestant majority at the time. Uh, And that sparked a a virulent anti-Catholic backlash uh, across the country. And uh, enter James G. Blaine, the former Speaker of the House, who who was uh, gearing up for a presidential run. He sought to seize on that anti-Catholic sentiment. Uh, And he thought that uh, this was an issue that could propel him to the presidency. So uh, he introduced a federal constitutional amendment called the Blaine Amendment um, that was designed to do two things. Uh, Number one, preserve the Protestant nature of the public schools. And number two, uh, prevent any public funding of so-called sectarian or Catholic schools. Um, His proposed amendment passed overwhelmingly in the House, uh, but it fell just a few votes short of the supermajority that it needed in the Senate in order to go on to the states for ratification. Uh, That was great news, but uh, Blaine and his cronies were a determined bunch, and they managed to do through the back door what they couldn't do through the front. Uh, As new states entered the union, they included in their state constitutions Blaine amendments. Uh, And Montana was one of those states in 1889 when it came into the union. And it is that very provision, Montana's Blaine Amendment, that uh, the Montana Supreme Court relied on 
to strike down the scholarship program that we'll be talking about here in a bit. So uh, yeah, it's a, a little bit of a, a, a long-winded uh, overview here and a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, but it's important to recognize that history uh, because when school choice opponents rely on these Blaine provisions to attack uh, school choice, you must remember they're not relying on some kind of high-minded, noble principle of separation of church and state. They're relying on vestiges of 19th century anti-Catholic bigotry. Uh, Minnesotans uh, will recall that we have a city in the Twin Cities suburbs named Blaine, Minnesota, named after Senator Blaine himself. And we here in Minnesota have a Blaine Amendment. Fortunately, our courts have interpreted our Blaine Amendment narrowly, but uh, a, a full-blown school choice program has never been tested uh, here in Minnesota. So uh, that it'll be interesting to see how this case uh, will have an impact or reverberate uh, nationwide. What are some of the potential impacts this case could have uh, uh, on states with Blaine amendments and the impacts on school choice programs, Michael? Well, Bl- Blaine amendments are the primary uh, tool that school choice opponents use to attack school choice programs. Um, and if the Supreme Court holds, as we hope it will, that government may not use these provisions or school choice opponents may not use these provisions to exclude religious options from school choice programs, uh, that would have an enormous impact in the 37 states that have these types of state constitutional provisions. It would make clear that government has to be neutral toward religion in financial aid programs. Neutral means these types of financial aid programs have to be open to religious and non-religious schools alike, and that government can't do what the Montana Supreme Court tried to do, uh, which is exclude religious options from school choice and other types of financial aid programs. Say a little bit about how you think the court will deal with uh, the fact that Blaine amendments were born in bigotry. Um, is that likely to color their analysis, or is that a or should is that or should be a component of their analysis that these Blaine amendments have their origin in anti-Catholic bigotry? Is that something that the court can take into consideration? It is, and in fact, uh, four justices in the past have taken it into consideration. There was a case in 2000 called Mitchell versus Helms where uh, a four-justice plurality of the court recognized this, uh, this shameful pedigree of, 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 uh, of the Blaine movement and called for it to be, quote, buried it now. Uh, it is absolutely something the court can consider in its analysis and should consider uh, because uh, the very state constitutional provision that the Montana Supreme Court relied on um, to deny school choice to Montana families is this relic of bigotry, and it's important for the court to recognize that, uh, and to recognize that that you know uh, uh, state courts can't rely on that type of sordid provision to deny uh, choice to families. Michael, tell us a little bit more about the actual legislative program that was enacted in Montana itself, what it does, and maybe you could share a, a few stories about some of the the people who've been affected by this and who you're profiling as you bring this case to the Supreme Court. Sure. Uh, The Montana legislature in 2015 uh, passed this school choice program, specifically the tax credit scholarship program. Uh, What that means is the state offers a modest tax credit to taxpayers uh, to incentivize them to make private donations to scholarship organizations. Uh, The scholarship organizations in turn use 
that money uh, to provide scholarships to Montana families so that parents can choose the schools that will work best for their children. And uh, the program was religion neutral. Uh, it was available to uh, for parents to use at religious and non-religious schools alike. Uh, but shortly after the program was adopted, the Montana Department of Revenue adopted a rule flatly barring religious schools from participating in the program. Uh, the Montana Department of Revenue believed that that rule was required by Montana's Blaine Amendment. Um, and uh, therefore, it adopted this rule that flatly discriminates against religious options. Um, we challenged that rule on behalf of three Montana families who sought to participate in the scholarship program and attend uh, religious schools. And uh, our lead plaintiff in the case, uh, Kendra Espinoza, uh, is a, a single mom uh, with two daughters that had been in, in, in public schools and she uh, she was not satisfied at all uh, with how her children were doing in the public schools and she sought to provide uh, an education that was uh, more compatible with uh, her beliefs as a Christian. Uh, and she chose to send them to Stillwater Academy, a Christian school in Kalispell. And uh, again, as I mentioned, Kendra's a single mother uh, she was working two jobs just to afford the tuition. Uh, she works during the day as an office administrator and at night as a janitor uh, to make ends meet and, and to be able to afford uh, the tuition to send her two daughters to Stillwater. When this program was adopted, it had the potential to be a game changer for Kendra. Obviously, no parent should have to work two jobs around the clock uh, just to provide their children educational opportunity. Uh, and so this was a, a, a game changer for her, um, but it was short lived. Uh, the, as I mentioned, the Montana Department of Revenue passed that rule excluding religious options. Um, and then, uh, you know, as the case proceeded, uh, we won in the trial court. Uh, the trial court uh, held that. Uh, not only was that rule not required by the Montana Constitution, but uh, that to exclude religious options presented federal constitutional problems. Um, but then the state appealed that decision to the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court unfortunately agreed with the Department of Revenue and really kind of doubled down on the discrimination. Uh, it struck down the entire scholarship program simply because it afforded parents the choice of attending their uh, of sending their children to religious schools uh, obviously that's problematic uh, obviously that's discriminatory we believe discriminatory in violation of the federal constitution and so we asked the u.s supreme court to hear the case and it agreed to hear it oftentimes the opponents of school choice will make arguments such as that these programs uh, makes direct public money to private schools, particularly private religious schools. How do you respond to that argument? The uh, school choice program here, first of all, didn't even involve public money. Uh, as a tax credit scholarship program, uh, it was funded by private donations that were merely incentivized by uh, the possibility of a tax credit. Uh, but more importantly, school choice programs don't fund schools, whether religious or non-religious. They fund families. Uh, they provide financial aid that parents can use at the school of their choice, the school that they believe will best meet their children's needs. And uh, there is nothing impermissible about that. 
And at the end of the day, it's parental choice, not the government dictating where any scholarship is used. Uh, so this is not about government uh, funding religion. It's about government investing in education so that parents can choose uh, what will work best for their children's education. For our listeners who might not be familiar with the inside baseball of Supreme Court litigation, how does a law firm like yours or any litigant go about trying to persuade the Supreme Court? Um, Is it all legal arguments and technical things, or are there moral arguments that are brought to bear on the discussion? How do you persuade a a court uh, with people who are all across the ideological spectrum that they should side with your clients? Well, uh, you know, a big part of it, obviously, is the legal argument. The primary part of it, when you're at that level, uh, is the legal argument, because at the end of the day, the U.S. Supreme Court is charged with interpreting and applying uh, the United States Constitution. And we believe the United States Constitution is, is firmly in our on our side here. Um, but it is also important for the court to realize the human impact that government action has. And here that government action is a a state Supreme Court decision uh, that flatly bars religious options from financial aid programs. That has a real world impact on folks like Kendra Espinoza and the many other Montana families and families across the country who are just trying to do what is best for their children. And that becomes an important part of of, of our case, uh, both in the court of law and in the court of public opinion. We want to, uh, it sounds cynical, but put a human face on this because at the end of the day, this decision impacts real families and it's important for the court to recognize uh, the impact that its decision will have. So so uh, the kind of human dimension here is absolutely important. And it is one, I think, that the, the, the court uh, uh, can't ignore. And, and we certainly hope it will take that into consideration here um, as it uh, tries to, to, to kind of wrestle with these constitutional issues. Michael, when will this case be heard and when do you expect a, a result or a decision to be handed down? The case will definitely be heard this term. We expect it to be uh, probably in January of 2020. Uh, the court has not set argument yet, but uh, it, it looks like that's what we're looking at in terms of an argument date. And then it will be resolved by the end of the term, and that would be at the end of June, no later than the end of June of 2020. Uh, we're speaking with Michael Bendis, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Michael, where can our listeners go if they want to hear, uh, read more about this case and read more about your work at the Institute for Justice? They can go to uh, IJ's website. It's a, it's a simple uh, uh, website to remember. It's www.ij.org. And on that page, uh, you'll see tabs for uh, each of the, the areas in which we practice. Uh, And if they go to the school choice tab there, uh, they'll see a link to the Espinoza case and uh, and they can learn a lot more uh, about the case, what's at stake uh, and the legal arguments that we're making in the case. The Minnesota Catholic Conference has advocated for a school choice tax credit program very similar to the one uh, under review in Montana. So we'll be looking forward uh, with bated breath uh, for the result in the Espinoza case. Very grateful for Michael Bendis, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, for joining us today. Thanks so much, Michael. Good luck on your work. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment.
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer. Kit, what have you got for the day? So the Minnesota Catholic Conference, we advocate for policies and laws that uphold life and dignity. So in regards to this, we received a comment from Charles, who says, the word dignity it's just fast becoming an empty word. So it does seem nowadays that the word dignity is often confused at best or even co-opted for evil means at worst. So, you know, you see that often with the assisted suicide debate. We hear proponents talking about death with dignity. It seems they've sort of co-opted that word. Jason, can you help us understand what we actually mean when we say that we advocate for policies that uphold human dignity? What's the Catholic understanding of the word dignity? Well, it's important to first keep in mind that uh, arguments are often won in how the debate is framed and terminology matters. Uh, Death with dignity is a perfect example of that. We uh, are debating the assisted suicide issue and the proponents of assisted suicide work overtime to try to get it called something else like medical aid in dying or death with dignity because they know uh, the term suicide is not one that is going to engender support or promote support for their cause. And so is this um, legalized suicide? Is it medicalizing suicide or is it, quote, promoting death with dignity? So how you frame the issue and the terms you use are absolutely essential in uh, framing the issue and moving uh, the ball forward in the debate and advancing your cause. So terminology does matter, and people have an acute sense of that. And it seems more and more that terms that are really rooted in the theology and and the thinking of the church, like dignity, social justice, for example, these terms have often been co-opted by people who don't mean the same things that we do about them. And so it's important to be very clear about what we mean about terminology and provide clear definitions of that. Dignity, of course, is one that's being used by all sorts of people to advance all sorts of things, even the things that contravene authentic dignity and the common good, like the proponents of assisted suicide. So look, drilling down into the term dignity itself, though, um, one of the four pillars of Catholic social teaching, the protection of human dignity, the promotion of the common good, um, the promotion of solidarity among peoples, and uh respecting the principle of subsidiarity that social issues should be addressed at the level at which they most impact people and people are most able to address them. But human dignity is a cornerstone of that. And why do we believe in human dignity? Why we promote human dignity? Precisely because our dignity is rooted in the reality of our created in the image and likeness of God. So each person is in many ways uh, that reflects that image of God and has dignity because of that, by the nature of his or her creation. And it doesn't matter who you are, um, what characteristics or traits you have, race, color, um, any any disability, age, etc., etc. By the very fact of being a human person, endowed with an immortal soul, and create, you are created in the image and likeness of God, and therefore have dignity. And so, this is an important principle, especially after the 20th century, in which we saw, you know, mass murder at a grand scale because uh, people were the wrong religion or creed or ethnicity. They had the wrong beliefs. Uh, how, how many people did communism kill? How many people did the Nazis kill simply because they were Jewish? Um, ideological opponents, uh, racial oppression. Um, 
small human beings, the extermination of the unborn, um, eugen the eugenics movement in the 20th century. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said uh, in the ca famous case of Buck v. Bell, in which the only Catholic Supreme Court Justice Pierce Butler of Minnesota stood against legalized eugenics and justice oliver wendell holmes said three generations of imbeciles is enough so regardless of your intelligence or your disability or who you are you have dignity and are owed respect and care simply by the very nature of being a human person and there are not a lot of other uh organizations churches religious groups etc etc with such a broad conception of human dignity as the Catholic Church promotes, and indeed, um, that's why the Church has become, uh, especially since the time of Pope John Paul II, the foremost defender of human rights and human dignity around the globe. But it's important that we understand the nature of that dignity, that you still have dignity even if you're small or if you're old. You still have dignity if you're a person with disabilities. You still have dignity if you're a person of another race or a creed or color. Even people with whom we disagree on matters of religious religion or politics, they still have dignity. And it's important that we treat people with that God-given dignity and see them, I think, even more so as Christ sees them. That's part of that faith aspect. We know by reason people have human dignity, but we also know by faith as well they're created in the image and likeness of God, and they're children of God. And we should treat other people as though they are made in that image and are children of God and see them and look at them and treat them as Christ sees them. Now, that's really, really hard, of course, but that's the very nature of what human dignity is, and it's a much richer concept than anything that's being sold in uh, on, by our secular counterparts, to be sure. Not to say that no secular counterparts understand it this way. There are a few. But at the same time, it's the church that brings this rich conception of dignity, and it's one that we really need to protect and uphold. Thank you so much for really digging into that a bit more. Uh, before we go today, we want to move into our bricklayer segment, giving people practical ways that they can start living out their faithful citizenship in the public arena, helping them become disciples at the Capitol. Well, one thing that's important is it's important to know when uh, to act on a bill and how to uh, advance a bill and when to have realistic expectations about when something's moving, when we put our energies into it, when we promote something. We can't expect uh, a bill to pass the first year that we introduce it. Likewise, uh, a bill that we may oppose if it's not going to have support in one of the houses, uh, you might want to conserve some of your resource. There's an old adage at the Capitol of no bill before its time. In other words, there has to be a certain level of soil tilling that needs to take place before a bill is really ripe for review or what the lobbyists say is ready for prime time. And so to whoop people up in opposition to a bill well before its time, especially when you have limited resources in the advocacy context, is not particularly prudent. This is why prudence is one of the very, very important or corner, cornerstone virtues of public life. It's not just doing the right thing to say. It's not just having the right ability to communicate it, but it also means knowing when to say. Uh, prudence is about when. There's a big component of the timing here. And so timing is a really, really important thing. So as you learn about issues and look at them, you, and before you spend a lot of time spinning your wheels, getting worked up, attending rallies, putting on rallies, et cetera, et cetera, have a keen sense of when a bill is ready for prime time and when might be the time for it to act. Now, you want to, of course, be proactive on a lot of legislation because you might not want it to pass. And so having a strong opposition early is an important thing. But oftentimes today what we see is people getting really whipped up 
about legislation and getting frantic well before a bill is ready uh, for prime time and when it's going to be most effective to be speaking into that piece of legislation. So it's really important that we have a keen sense of when is the opportune time to speak. And this is, of course, why we have lobbyists and why we look look to experts and people involved in the legislative process who can give us guidance. And that's what we try to fulfill at the Minnesota Catholic Conference through things like the Catholic Advocacy Network is to highlight important legislation, but also send you action alerts about when it's important to speak. And we profile those issues through the Catholic Advocacy Network, but also um, through our columns, Faith in the Public Arena, and then on uh, in fora like this one, uh, the Bridge Builder podcast. So we try to provide those resources for you to help you identify when to speak because you're not always the expert. But something we just want to caution against is getting really emotionally worked up about an issue um, and well before a bill is ready for prime time or it's ripening. Uh, save your energy, save your resources uh, to speak into that legislation at the appropriate time. So remember the principle, no bill before it's time. That's all the time we have for today, but remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of our podcast, The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you will help others bring Catholic faith into public life. Becoming a sponsor of The Bridge Builder show is a great opportunity for businesses and organizations to advertise. Let listeners know that you support bringing the Catholic faith into the public arena. Contact our producer, Kit, via email at show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. Listeners, you can also be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember, you can catch up on any past episodes of The Bridge Builder online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for The Bridge Builder Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, God bless you and have a great weekend.